music stand. The music stand. Yeah. Just bring it down when you come. The, um, the benefits of coming down here is, um, well, I like the intimate setting. The disadvantage is I got this little pulpit that doesn't contain both my notes and the Bible. That's why I love going up there because I can spread the Bible out and the notes. So I need two pulpits. Because <laughs> okay. um, in this message that I put together, I don't have... All my all the Bible readings in my notes. Usually, I put all the Bible readings in the notes that I know, but um, I, I don't in this message. Um, the other thing that's going to be a little bit different is I, I am getting at this age where I actually going to have to re- start wearing glasses when I preach. I can't read my notes anymore. Uh, or the other alternative is to start um, making the font a bit bigger. See, I can no longer read 12 font. I might have to go up to about 18 font. Um, this one, however, I hand-wrote it, so it's a, it's a moot point. Um, look, again, I appreciate you guys coming out tonight. I know it's, it's been a long day, and so I won't keep you long. Uh, this is really going to be a short devotion. In, in our time, I want us to consider two themes. Two themes are normally put together uh, in the world. The world will never put these two themes together, but Christians do. And those are the two themes of suffering and the goodness of God. Suffering and the goodness of God. That's what I want us to discuss tonight. Some of you might remember, some of the older folks here might remember, uh, that a number of years ago a a book came out called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Some of you might remember that book. It was written by a Jewish rabbi, and he wrote it because, um, I can't remember the circumstances, but his son died. His son died, uh, and as he was processing that, he, thinking that he was a good guy, good person, why do bad things happen to me? Um, he said this, I rather believe in a God who wanted to do something to stop evil, but couldn't, than a God who could stop evil, but won't. That's pretty much the sentiment of, of most people out there. That's why they don't want to believe in a God. Because if, if there is a good God, then he would stop evil. And he would end hunger and uh, suffering and all, all sorts of bad things out there. The upshot of all that is, and the upshot of what most people believe, is that, yes, I believe there's a God, but he's not a good God. Uh, most non-Christians, I don't know if you have these conversations with the unbelievers out there, whether your own family members or people you work with, but the, the number one thing that uh, prohibits them from, you could say, wanting to hear about God is that they have an objection, first and foremost, is that God is not good. And, and that's no surprise, because that goes all the way back to the, the garden. That, that's basically what the temptation was to Eve, and ultimately to Adam, that God wasn't good. Look at this garden, look at all the trees... Um, and, of course, before Satan comes, the, the, there's a description of the garden, how beautiful it is, and all the trees that were available to them. But one, just this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we could talk about why they weren't supposed to eat of that tree. But the, the, the picture is painted for us that it's a beautiful garden. And because it was a beautiful garden and all these trees, God is good. 
I mean, if Genesis 1, Genesis 1 tells us that God is king, the next question that comes is, well, well what kind of king is he? Is, a, is he a good king? Is he a good creator? Well, Genesis 2 answers that question. But here comes Satan, and he gets Eve to doubt God's character. He gets God to doubt God's goodness. And, of course, when you, you put doubt on God's character, the upshot of that is you ultimately put doubt on God's word. That's the schemes of the devil. That's been no different from then till today. Uh, Satan wants you to doubt God's goodness when circumstances come that aren't good uh, or bad and are suffering. And then ultimately it's for you to doubt God's word. So as I said, that's not surprising that he wrote this. Uh, He speaks for most people, I believe, most unbelievers. The goodness of God is always questioned when there is, especially especially when there is suffering. But, of course, you'll find something completely different in the Bible, and that's precisely the fact that suffering, uh, suffering actually, in an ironic way, in a paradoxical way, proves God's goodness, and we'll see this. In fact, you could say that it is precisely in suffering that God's goodness and existence becomes most apparent because it is there in the dark places that God meets his people and comforts them with his goodness. When all is stripped away and you're not leaning on anything or anybody and you are left there just with you and God, it, it, it makes you have to be dependent upon him. And sometimes suffering has to strip all of that stuff away to reveal where your heart is, reveal where the idols are, and God's basically saying, I will have no other gods before me. And you're going to have to fall on your knees and pray, and you're going to have to go to his word and meditate on it to know of him. So, again, this is what we're going to discuss tonight. And so let me begin, uh, and as I said, this is going to be a short devotion uh, and we're going to look at a number of different texts. But let's first of all look at ex- Exodus 3. Turn to Exodus 3. 33, rather, sorry. Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Now, if you know your Bible, Exodus 32 is what? What happened in Exodus 32? The, the golden calf story, right? Um, I mean, Moses is up on the hill. The people get restless. And they basically say, no, no, let's... let's um, Let's get Aaron to make us a, an idol. And, and you, you know the story, so I won't rehearse it all. But th- there's a sense, and I can understand this, when Moses comes down, I mean, Moses is a bit furious, but at the same time, he's a bit, he's a bit, um, a bit fearful. Uh, it, it, in one sense, he's got a mob on his hands. There's a mob on his hand that uh, people who just rebelled against God and ultimately could rebel against him. And so when you come into Exodus 33, Moses has this um, petition. He has this plea with God. And basically, in a word, it's, I, I need to see your glory. I need, I, I need to see your glory so I can be assured that you are with me. Because I, I don't want Exodus 32 hap, happen again, basically. So you come down to verse 12. Moses says to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You, you said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you, so that I may favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. 
And he replied, my presence will go with you and I will go, I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from there, uh, from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by, by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing. You have asked for me, for you have found favor with me and I know you by name. Then Moses said, and this is the petition, please let me see your glory. And God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Just jumping back to verse 19, and really the point that I want to draw your attention to, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Question might come, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that the goodness of God will pass before Moses? I mean, what is the goodness of God? Well, let me tell you, the goodness of God is nothing less than Really, all of the attributes of God, all the attributes are, are good, and God in His essence is a good God. The character of God Himself, powerfully presenting Himself to Moses or to anyone, in a word, is that He is good, especially, especially in times of crisis, which is the time that Moses is asking for this. You jump down to verse 22. My glory... Passes by. And you'll notice back up in verse 19, passes by. Verse 22, passes by. That's a, that's a key, key word to take note of. It passes by. You'll see it again if you turn over to 1 Kings 19. Same, different but similar experience with uh, Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Again, do you remember what happened in 1 Kings 18? 1 Kings 18 is Elijah up on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, what I call the, the showdown, um, where there, there's a contest. You know, who is God? Is uh, Baal God or is, is Yahweh God? Because the people of Israel had one foot in Yahweh, he had one foot in Baal, and remember God says, I have no other gods before me, so make a decision. Are you with Yahweh or are you with Baal? But l let's just make it clear who is actually God, and remember you know the whole scene. Who's going to rain down fire upon the rocks, etc., etc. So that, that's 1 Kings 18. So on the heels of that, um, it's interesting. You, you would have think or thought rather that Elijah would have been on a, no pun intended, on a, a mountain-high kind of an experience. But shortly right after that, he, uh, he despair kicks in. Um, pro probably because he realizes that even though it was quite evident that Yahweh was God, the people aren't Altogether, weren't all, all to, the people weren't all for him. Let me say it that way. 
The people saw it, but they still didn't believe. And so that was discouraging. So he kind of despairs on that. Then he despairs on the fact that Jezebel, remember ugly, wicked queen Jezebel gets word of what happened, and she basically says, uh, off with his head. And so she orders to exactly for that. And he takes off for his life. Remember, he runs. And he, so he, he despairs over the fact that not everybody kind of repented and turned to God. He despairs over the fact that Jezebel was after him. And so when you come to 1 Kings 19 and you drop down to verse 8, it's actually quite interesting where he lands, where he ends up. He says, so he got up, ate and drank, and then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, where's Horeb? What's another name for Horeb? Sinai. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are this, the exact same thing. Back in Exodus 32, where was Moses when he asked to see God's glory and God passed by? Same place. Same place. Verse 9. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, Why are, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, Go and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord what? There's our word. The Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. Then Elijah heard it. He wrapped himself in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now I'll stop there. I mean, you could finish the verse by uh, where it says, Suddenly a voice came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I love that. This is the second time, by the way, God says to that. Here is Elijah who, um, for all intents and purposes, is uh, having a pity party. He's depressed. Uh, I look at all that I've done, but it has been for what good? And so he's, he's disappointed, discouraged what happened at the mountain. He's certainly disappointed, discouraged because of Jezebel's after him. And he runs, he finds himself in a cave, and God meets him in a very tenderly, graciously condescending way, but nevertheless, a very pointed way when he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Sometimes we need that, right? Sometimes we need, if not God, but through a person to come and say, what's going on? I know your life is, you know... Is a bit um, topsy turvy at the moment. I know that you're you're going through a particular trial, but what are you doing here? It's like the psalmist who says, "Why are you in despair, O my soul?" Right? Why? He's asking himself a question. Why are you in despair? Do I have any reason to be in despair? Absolutely not. Is the is the point? If I know the character of God and I put my life into God's hands, in fact, the psalmist says, "Why are you despairing, my soul? For my hope is in the Lord." Right? So this this is a bit of a rhetorical question that God is asking Elijah. But but my point here, though, is I wanted to highlight 
that with Moses and with Elijah, there's a divine pattern. And it comes with that simple three words, passing them by. And as I said, this is, this is not just for uh, Moses. It's not just for Elijah. This could be said about Job, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way through the Old Testament, New Testament, throughout church history. That where God is in the midst of our suffering, he, he passes by. Passes by in the sense that he's present. He is present. So the question comes, where, where is God when his children suffer? How does God encourage when his children are in anguish? And in a word, it's his presence. That's what Moses got. That's what Elijah got. And as I said, right through the Old Testament into the New Testament, through church history, that he hasn't gone anywhere. He may feel like he's distanced. Hence the psalmist cries out, where are you? How long, O Lord, will you stand afar off? Remember some of those psalms? It's not that he's far off. It's not like he's forsaken. I mean, Psalm 22, why... Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, again, those are the words of Jesus on the cross, but the reality is that God hasn't forsaken him. The psalmist, David, or Christ. But at times it may feel like you've been forsaken. And that's okay. That's good. Because that's a test, right? And tests are good. Because tests reveal the heart. And, and thus, not only it's good, it's a mercy. Because if your life needs to be flooded with grace, then you, you realize that and you call out to God to flood out your life with grace. But again, the point here is in the midst of suffering, God chooses to encourage the afflicted with his presence. Uh, to be more specific, you could say, with, with a new view of his majesty and magnificence, a fresh manifestation of the one who is the essence of all goodness itself. That's what he gave Moses. That's what he gave Elijah. Again, in their suffering, God, get this, God causes all his goodness to pass before them. You catch that? Let me say that again. I think that's the point. In their suffering, in the suffering of God's people, God causes all his goodness to pass before them. They need to see that God is good. Because, why? Because providence makes it look like it's horrible. And, and you jump from life is horrible to what? God is horrible. But you need to see that God is good. Despite what providence is out there. Remember, I don't know, some weeks ago I, I, I said... When you're struggling with the providences of life, don't put trust in the providences. Put trust in the promises. Because the promises just never change. Providences do, but promises don't. So this is how God deals with his people. You remember David in Psalm 23. I love, and you don't have to turn there. You know this. In Psalm 23, verse 6, David says, Surely goodness and loving kindness, which is the, the Hebrew word kesed, which we translate covenant loyalty, covenant love, Goodness and kessed, loving kindness, shall what? 
Follow me all the days of my life. One of the things I love about Psalm 23, I don't know if you've ever picked it up, uh, and it's a familiar psalm, probably too familiar you don't pick it up, is there's a picture of where God is in relationship to David as he writes it. He begins with, the Lord is my shepherd, what? I lack nothing. He leads me. So where is he there? He's out in front. Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is where? With me. And then all the days of my life, loving kindness and goodness are where? Behind me. Isn't that a great picture? Before, beside, behind. He surrounds my life with goodness and loving kindness. So David got it. And, and remember, it's all the days of my life, which means it's today, it's, it's tomorrow, it's next week, it's, it's, it's next month. You know, I, I do biblical counseling. I counsel people over the years, especially, you know, people that are struggling. Um, some here would remember a number of years ago we had a couple that lost a nine-year-old girl. And I remember sitting down with the couple, and um, the husband was doing okay. The wife was really struggling. And I remember, you know, she would say things like, you know, those things I used to believe, I don't believe anymore. And like, like, like what? I don't believe that, you know, God's good. I, I don't believe God is, is, is kind. And, and look, I didn't want to beat her up because we, we're all there. We've all been there. We've all, I mean, just lost a nine-year-old daughter. Um, she ultimately worked through that, and I think she would go back and say, you know, I, I, I was wrong in saying that. But it, I remember in my counsel to her, you know, one of the things, uh, well, in fact, I, I don't think I said anything for the first eight weeks. I went over to their house every Monday night and just let them talk. Um, and about the eighth week, I said, look, look, I think it's time we have a little chat, just ha- having heard everything. Um, and one of the things uh, I, I remember needing to remind her of is of God's immutability. We all know what that means. God doesn't change. Uh, you know, yesterday was God good to you? Absolutely. The day before? Absolutely. Now, today, bad providence. Today, your child has died. Not to minimize that, but if God was good yesterday, did he wake up today and basically say, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be good today. I'm going to let your daughter die. Do do you think that's how it worked? Of course not. Loving kindness and goodness follow me all the days of my life. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Put your, put your trust in that. Put your trust in the, the promise of God that He will never leave you nor forsake you. We read Psalm 118. Verse 1. For give thanks to the Lord for His goodness last how long? Forever. 
Don't put your trust in the provinces of God. That's why I, I, I don't understand. Well, I do. It, it appeals to the flesh. I don't, you know, these churches or you, you know, I turn the TV on and I see these guys on TV, you know, and it's been on for a long time where they, they promise, you know, you come to, you, you come to Jesus and he's going to give you prosperity and health and you'll never have any problems anymore. What a, what a bunch of liars. They're lying to you. In fact, I, I, I can tell you that I didn't have any problems until I became a Christian. Right? I was just sailing away, doing what I wanted, going where I wanted. And I became a Christian. I realized I couldn't do that anymore. I had to battle the flesh. And then trials came into my life that I never dreamed of having, but they were purposeful because I needed some refining. I had certain idols in my uh, heart that needed to be pulled out. And again, I get it. We, we, we doubt God's character. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's... Is he, does he really know what he's doing? Is, is he really wise? Is he really benevolent? But you're going to have to work through that. But what the Bible is clear is that God knows all about your trials. He knows all about your suffering. And therefore, that is the very point where he manifests himself the most. If you're watching. If you're listening. He passes by. Turning your Bible to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Look at verse 19. This is a Psalm of David. Of course, you know David was no stranger to trouble. Notice what he says in Psalm 31 verse 19. How great is your goodness. By the way, the great there is uh, the Hebrew word rav, where, you know, where we get rabbi, the great one. But rav, how great is your goodness. Notice he says, which you have stored up. Or you might have concealed, hidden, laid up, something like that. How great is your goodness which you have stored up for who? For those who fear you, which you have prepared in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. Isn't that good? Now, you, you might ask, well, what is good? What is it that God stores up? What is manifested in the sight of men? What is it? God's what? God's goodness. You see that? Stored up for what? Just ask, I'm just asking the question as I read it. How great is your goodness which you have stored up? Why store it up? Give it to me now. <laughs> right? Why is he storing it up and when is he storing it for? I actually think he's storing it up for when you have trials. Because you're going to need it. You're going to need to know that God is good. Now, you, you, you know, when, when everything is going well, we become that um, fair-weather Christian, you know, the, the, the Christian that, you know, kind of sails along when there's wind in your sail because everything's going hunky-dory. But all of a sudden, when the storms of life come uh, and you start doubting, that's when God manifest his goodness to you and the people around you. 
That's what I get out of that song. Now, we, we, we can't go through all the texts that relate to suffering, but uh, again, just in the few that we've seen, and I know there's things that, uh, uh, verses that you're thinking of, uh, suffering and goodness go hand in hand throughout the Bible. You, you, you won't find a context of suffering, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, without some aspect of God's goodness being put on display. And you need to catch that. As it says, or as David here says, he stores it up and he gives it to those. And, and it's interesting. He gives it to those who do what? Take refuge in him. Doesn't, you know, what, what would be the opposite of that? You don't take refuge in him. Who do you take refuge in? You take refuge in, in man. I mean, how many times? Jeremiah 17, Psalm 46, I think it is. You know, don't put your trust in the chariots. Don't put your trust in the horses. Don't trust man. You know, that was way back then. Today, you fill in the blank what you could possibly put your trust in. You could put your trust in your friends. You could put your trust in your career. You could put your trust in perhaps even your own wit and wisdom and your own strength to get through it all. But you're only going to last for a little while. You're going to just putter out. Remember Isaiah says, you'll, you'll mount up like eagle's wings. I mean, that's, that's real power. Why? Because you've trusted in the Lord. You've trusted in His goodness. Go over to Psalm 52. Psalm 52, uh, verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures forever. Or you might have, why boast about evil, you hero? God's faithful love is constant. So faithful love or, or goodness, we're kind of talking about the same thing. Same idea as David back in Psalm 23. Constant love. Psalm 118 endures forever. Follows me all the days. The goodness of God is there for his children, David says, in the good times and especially in the bad times. It's stored up. And then when it's ready to be disposed, he brings it out and manifests it, obviously, that God is good. So, what are we saying here? What do we observe? Uh, simply that the goodness of God is on display in the midst of suffering. And that the goodness of God is passing by in the midst of of grief. So ask yourself, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know where you guys are at the moment. Maybe some of you are struggling. Are you questioning the goodness of God right now? Do you think He's abandoned you? Um, well, you need to do what the psalmist says, and that is open your eyes and behold the wondrous things He's doing. Taste and see that He is good. See his goodness all around. But maybe you're asking, well, okay, maybe um, I need a little bit more convincing, Todd. What, what do you mean by the goodness of God? Well, 
Uh, as I said earlier, the goodness of God is nothing less than all of the qualities of the living God. In other words, is God perfect? Absolutely. So what's the goodness of God? The goodness of God, in a sense, is his perfection, if you could say it that way. A.W. Pink says, it, uh, uh, says, the goodness of God respects the perfection of his nature. Let me say that again. The goodness of God respects the perfection of his nature. Another way of looking at this is what John says in 1 John 1.5. He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Say it another way. There's no badness at all. Badness is the opposite of goodness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There's no evil in him at all. He is all good. All good. And in fact, you remember the, the one attribute of, of, of God that's repeated more than once is the holy, right? Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. What does that tell you? It doesn't tell you that the seraphim have a stuttering problem. What it does tell you is that uh, that's the one attribute that is that permeates all the other attributes, so, you, you, you think of his justice. Is that a holy justice? Absolutely. Uh, you think of his wrath. Is that a holy wrath? Absolutely. Is, is love? Holy. Mercy? Holy. Grace? Holy. Goodness? Holy. So we come back to goodness? No evil. It's, it's a holy goodness. It's a holy goodness. Thomas Manson, the Puritan, said it this way, God is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else, for all creatures are good by, only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a superadded quality. In God it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop, but in God there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good, less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him either. End quote. What is he saying? He's, he's saying that God's goodness is, again, is what? His perfection. He is good to all, all the time, which means that he is perfect all the time. Did you catch that? Meditate on that. If he is good, and he is good all the time, and then... That follows that he is what? Perfect and perfect all the time. He makes no mistakes. In fact, it was, it's impossible for him to make a mistake. If he is absolutely and infinitely perfect and good, again, it means that he is impossible to do anything wrong. And that's what you need to chew on. And that's what you need to... Think upon, meditate upon when you are going through trials. Talk to yourself. What? Don't listen to yourself. That's what the psalmist did. Why, why, why? God can't make a mistake. He's eternal. And He's immutable. He cannot make a mistake. He is good. He is perfect. And as I said, that He puts that on display as well as his love, his benevolence, his grace, his wisdom, and his mercy. We talked about or heard about that this morning. All those attributes are in play. 
You ever wondered, and I know you know the verse, but if you really chewed on it, why James in James 1 says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. He's not saying trials are joyful. Losing a nine-year-old daughter is not joyful. It's miserable. It's heartbreaking. So what does he mean by that? And he doesn't say feel it all joy. I mean, we can often put joy as an emotion, and it can be. But he says consider it. Think. It's a thinking word. So meditate upon it. Stew on it. Whatever word you want to throw in there. But why, why do I need to consider it all joy when I'm in the midst of my trial? Why does he say that? Well, he does answer it a couple of verses later. But if I could just slide in Romans 8.28 to, to help put it together. What does Romans 8.28 say? All things, what? Work together for good. All, all the good things? Yes. But all the bad things? He doesn't say all good things or all bad things. He says all things. Even the evil things he works together, right? For his glory and for my good. James says, because of that, you better consider it all joy. Because in, in, the, in the trial that you're going through, it, it's, it's for his glory and for your good. It's a maturing, refining. Uh, he desires you to be like Christ. And sanctification comes through trials. Sanctification comes through suffering. What are the means of sanctification? Prayer, Bible reading. Uh, when you're going through a trial, that's probably when you find yourself on your knees and Bible open. I mean, I've been around for a while and I've gone through a number of trials. Were they fun? No. Were they joyful? No, but looking back, I am thankful for everyone. I wouldn't change a thing because I, I, I'm, I'm more mature because of that. And I can be more sympathetic because of that. I can come along the, you know, the person who's going through the same thing and say, I've been there. I've been there. Keep going. Remember what Psalm 119 says? Psalm 119, verse 68. He says, you are good and do good. In fact, I think somewhere in Psalm 119 says, I, I, I went astray until your, until your word, until trials, affliction brought me back. It was good that I was afflicted, for now I know your word. You know what it is. As Christians, we need to have a perspective on, on a right perspective on God, a right perspective on us, and a right perspective on, on, on life. And unfortunately, there's, there's baggage there that kind of complicates it all. I, I remember, and I think I've told you this story before, I remember when I was at Grace Community Church, and this is, this is some 30-plus years ago, but there was um, this family. Uh, the, 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 the husband was a pastor out in the country somewhere. I, I want to say the middle of Kansas. It doesn't matter where it was, but I just remember it was a, he was a small-town um, it was a small church, uh, and he had two daughters. And at the time, they were hosting two foreign students. Um, you, some of you, you probably heard this story. MacArthur's told this before as well, but but I was there for it, so I, I kind of remember this. But um, if I remember how it goes, 
they came out from wherever they were. They drove out to California because they, the kids were about to graduate. His two girls were about to graduate from high school, and they were looking at the master's college, master's university. And um, after they were going to visit on the Saturday, master's university on Sunday, they were going to come to Grace Community Church. And apparently John knew this guy. Well, long story short, uh, they came out on the Saturday, and they did visit the campus. But when they left the campus and hopped on the freeway, um, whether he didn't see the big truck coming down, flying down, he merged too quickly, and um, the truck couldn't, couldn't have time to stop and just ran right up to the, their, their bottom and basically catapulted the car out, off the freeway, down the ravine, rolling a few times. The two girls were sitting in the back, uh, and they were instantly killed. And those were the only two that were killed. And, and on Sunday, they were there, and, and basically, John asked them, what's, what's going on? What's going through your mind? Uh, how are you handling it? I mean, what do you even ask the guy? Uh, and the mom who's there as well. And it was, it was amazing, the response. He says, isn't God good? That was his first response. Isn't God... Apparently, the two girls were Christians. He said, I, I always wanted to give... My girls, a big church experience because they came from the small church. I didn't know it was going to be heaven. Um, and, and Grace Community Church has a big choir, if you've seen their videos. Uh, I always wanted my girls to experience a choir. I didn't know it was going to be a heavenly choir. And isn't God good that he took my daughters and not these two foreign national students because they're not Christians? Now they have time to repent. I mean, what Unbelievable. That's perspective. Isn't God good? I mean, I don't know where he is today, uh, but at, at that moment, that was, that was a phenomenal illustration and lesson for all of us. And so I pass it on for what it's worth. Some of you might know the, the hymn writer William Cooper, spelled C-O-W, so uh, some of us call it Cowper. But William Cooper wrote this famous hymn, he says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. You guys know the rest? Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He hides a smiling face. Don't trust in the providences. Trust in the promises. And behind the frowning providence is a smiling face. It's a, it's a face that's full of goodness. Remember Jonathan, I think I mentioned this even last week. Jonathan wanted to encourage his friend David, King David. How did he do that? And remember I told you in Hebrew, the idea of, of encouragement is strengthening the hands because the hands are quivering, the hands are weak because they're fearful and doubtful. And so the encouragement by way of a word picture is you've got to strengthen the hands. And literally what Jonathan did was he took David's hand and he put it into God's hand. That's how, that's how you encourage someone. You encourage them that God is good and he's good all the time. That hand is a good hand. It's a gracious hand. It's a merciful hand. It's a loving hand. It is a wise hand. John Newton did this exact thing. I think you might have come across a, a volume of uh, John Newton's letters. He wrote letters as a pastor, um, and they're compiled. Uh, and when he heard the death 
of a child, he wrote to the father and said this, My dear friend, I must leave a line to tell you that we sympathize with you and your wife in your severe trial. But at the same time, I rejoice exceedingly in the Lord's goodness, enabling you to be resigned and satisfied with His will, despite all the feelings and pinchings of flesh and blood. If you can now believe and say, He does all things well, with what transport would you say it? If the whole plan of His wisdom and love was unfolded to your view, He will condescend to unfold it to you hereafter. And it will fill you with admiration. It is an affliction to be cordially rejoiced in when the Lord who cares for us intimates His will by the event. Healing and wounding are equally from His hand and are equally tokens of His love and care over us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You are in the wise and merciful hands of one who prescribes for you with unerring wisdom and has unspeakably more tenderness than can be found in all human hearts taken together. He weighs all your painful afflictions with consummate accuracy. You shall not have a single grain of trouble more, nor a single moment longer, than He will enable you to bear, and will sanctify to your good. We know all things are dispensed to us by the infinite wisdom, and number, weight, and measure, with a far greater accuracy than any doctor can adjust his medicines to the state and strength of his patients. The flesh will feel the sharp affliction, but faith and prayer will lighten the burden and heal the wound. Daily sense... Let me repeat this. Daily your sense of the Lord's goodness will increase, and the sense of pain will abate so that you will have less sorrow and more joy from day to day. What a blessing to be a Christian, to have a hiding place and a resting place always at hand, to be assured that all things work for our good and that our compassionate shepherd has his eye always upon us to support and to relieve us. I am affectionately and sincerely your friend, brother, and servant, John Newton. That's how you encourage someone. Let me close with one last verse. Turn to Psalm 37. Okay, we'll just close with this. Psalm 37, verse 23. Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Why? For the Lord upholds him. And I love this. What does he uphold him with? He upholds him with his hand. And can I tell you, that's a hand that is full of goodness. So put your hand into God's hand. In the midst of your suffering. Because he is good. Even in the suffering, because he was good before the suffering, and he's going to be good after the suffering. He is good all the time. Father, thank you for our time tonight that we can just be reminded of that. Maybe some here are a bit downcast and discouraged. Maybe they're struggling with the thought that you are good because of the providences you have brought to their life. 
just ask, Lord, that you would strengthen their faith. We've been studying the book of Hebrews of people who have been discouraged and fearful and doubtful. And and the writer of Hebrews says, look to Christ. And that's the message today as well. Look at the goodness of Christ. He loved us, died for us, intercedes on our behalf, even now. Lord, may we take uh, the heart, the, the letter of Newton, where he tells this couple basically to meditate on the goodness of God. But we don't want to minimize trials and minimize the pain. But we want to maximize, as it were, the greatness and the goodness of God in the midst of it. And remember what Paul says that the, the trials and the suffering pair, or pale rather, in comparison to the glory that awaits us in heaven. And we have the mind of Christ that who for the joy that set before him endured the cross. Lord, we do thank you for trials. May we wrestle with it so we do come to the same point that James comes to where he says, consider it all joy. May we understand that it is a sanctifying means of grace. It is a a time of refinement. It's a time to make us more like Christ, to mature us. And that's what we want. So do your will in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.